Every spring and fall, you can hear the collective groan as we manually reset the clocks in our cars and kitchen appliances. But those twice-a-year time changes may finally become a thing of the past. Back in March, the Senate approved the Sunshine Protection Act, which, if passed, will make daylight savings time permanent. But some sleep experts are taking issue with the bill. Permanent daylight savings time is going to have some unexpected repercussions that are problematic from a public health standpoint because it's just less aligned with like human circadian biology. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, sleep as a public health issue. Later in the show, we'll talk about postpartum depression among new mothers. But first, Mariana Sklow-Cox says sleep is a public health issue that impacts almost every aspect of our physical and mental well-being. She's a community and environmental health professor at Old Dominion University. So the connection um, is very strong between sleep and health. It's been shown to be associated with cardiovascular risks, injuries, mental health risks. I mean, practically every dimension of health, obesity has been associated with sleep disturbances and sleep disorders. So it's really a public health issue. How strong is the connection between sleep and mental health, our mental well-being? Very, very strong. So, for example, insomnia has been associated with the risk of new depression. So um, my colleagues and I actually did a study that we found that in folks who didn't have depression, just having insomnia was associated with the risk of new depression within four years. Even if you adjust for all types of mental health, right, comorbidities and other types of health comorbidities, really really showing that it was really the insomnia, right, that was a major risk factor for the development of new depression. And since then, there have been some really, um, I think, interesting and and well-done studies that have looked at if you treat insomnia sometimes, right, you can really address depression because insomnia, you know, as a symptom of of depression also, it tends to be the, the, the one that lasts the longest, the most sort of residual symptom of depression, even after antidepressant treatment. Do we necessarily realize how impaired we are when we're sleep deprived? No, absolutely not. I um, worked for many years with someone named Dr. Catesby Ware um, at EVMS, and he he had a driving simulator and um, would put folks like resident physicians in the driving simulator and see how they did, you know, after night call and whatnot. And folks feel like they're fine, but their performance metrics and measures show that they're not fine, but they're not cognizant of that. And they can be in areas, for example, like drowsy driving or attentional lapses. So you can't remember, you know, several miles, the last several miles you've driven, but you don't really associate it with insufficient sleep. Um, So yes, I think there is this under-recognition and I think there's that bravado, right? I'm fine when I can't and don't sleep. You know, I can do fine. Have there been high-profile catastrophes where a lack of sleep was identified as the major factor? Yes, absolutely. Um, There have been many. I think the Challenger space shuttle was one of the biggest ones. It was found that the managers and the folks were working on this issue They had slept less than two hours for several sequential nights. Um, Chernobyl, the Three Mile Island, and the Exxon Valdez, it was thought to be the captain was um, asleep, you know, and ran aground. But I would say for each of these kind of major catastrophic events, right, there are hundreds and hundreds of near misses that are sort of just nearly averted. So those are really, really concerning to folks, right, in the, in the, in the sleep field because you, you hear about the really major ones, but all the time there are all these near-miss events, right, that at any moment could be as major as these catastrophes. A few months ago, the Senate approved the Sunshine Protection Act, which would make daylight savings time permanent. It's been praised by many, but you say if passed, it might actually hurt our sleep. How so? Absolutely. You know, I definitely am in agreement with eliminating the seasonal time changes. 
daylight savings really um, wreaks havoc with our circadian system. I, I think there's a real fear among sleep folks that it's going to lead to sort of this chronic misalignment of the circadian system. And kind of fixed standard time is best aligned with our circadian biology and really would be best for public health because daylight savings is has been associated with, you know, cardiovascular events and mental health risks and motor vehicle crashes. So we're, we're um, I think bracing ourselves for this and, and quite concerned and hoping there's still time to, you know, be consulted on this and uh, weigh in further. But don't you think the problems associated with daylight savings time come because we're jumping in and out of daylight savings and standard time, that if we simply made standard, either standard time or daylight savings time, we wouldn't wreak havoc on our circadian rhythms. True? Well, I would say that not exactly. Uh, I would say that really what it does, daylight savings, is it adds evening light and removes the, the morning light. And you kind of need that morning light to set your biological clock. It's sort of a zeitgeber. It's sort of like jet lag or something, the daylight savings time, like being in a different time zone. So it's it's not really natural. Um, we don't really adapt to it the way that I think folks believe that we do. If the Sunshine Protection Act is passed, and this is the one that would make daylight savings time permanent, mm -hmm. is that still better than hopping on and off daylight savings time, would you say? No. <laughs> I oh, don't think so. I right? don't think so. No, I think that they tried it back in the 70s. The Congress enacted the Emergency Daylight Savings Time Energy Conservation Act. And then they they came out with an interim report way back in 1974 and... Um, decided it wasn't a good idea. <laughs> so I am, I hope they, right, can, uh, can go back. I think that biannual time change, I mean, it's complicated. I think that, that, you know, it is time to stop that biannual time change, but I think that the permanent daylight savings time is going to have some unexpected repercussions that are problematic from a public health standpoint because it's just less aligned with, um, like, human circadian biology. You're a strong advocate of especially high school students getting to sleep longer in the morning and starting mm -hmm. school later. Yes. That's a really important thing for them. Absolutely. Um, uh, many, many studies have shown there's been a lot of research on this in the past, especially, you know, I'd say the past 10 to 15 years that later high school start times really, really help our teens um, in terms of a lot of outcomes, school performance, injuries, mental health, risk-taking, because, you know, we know that sleep deprivation impairs judgment as well. And we found that just one hour less of sleep in teens was associated with more hopelessness and, you know, suicidal ideation. So yeah, no, I, we, you know, I feel very strongly and I think that um, the sleep community has been advocating for this for a long time. And it's also like a, you know, a sleep, um, like equity issue, because folks right. who are in certain neighborhoods, right, are at the bus stop at 5 a.m. to get on that bus. They don't have other forms of transportation to school. So it's, it's really complicated. Do you think Americans are especially bad at valuing a good night's rest? Are we a little more sleep-deprived than other nations? Well, you know, I think in this society, culturally, we value, we have this, like, you know, work ethic and this kind of puritanical notion, right, of... Uh, working, right, as much as possible. Um, my cousin Carla, um, she's a geneticist and, and she moved to, um, to the Netherlands and, and she worked in a lab and she had finished a postdoc at Hopkins. So she was, she was used to a culture of, you know, um, working all the time and being very tired and being sleep deprived. And I think she thought of it as sort of a badge of honor. And she said that she started off in the Netherlands this way and she would come into work very tired with dark circles under her eyes. And folks would look at her like, what is wrong with her? I mean, it was really like shameful to them. They were not, they would say, you know, go to sleep. Why, why are you coming into work like this? Um, this is really, <laughs> this is really not something to be proud of. And she immediately learned that this was not part of the culture. And she had been, you know, at Hopkins for a long time. I don't know if it was maybe five years or longer 
where everybody was so proud of her when she was tired and, you know, oh, you're sleep deprived. You must be working so hard. And there immediately in the Netherlands, they thought, you know, you know, what's wrong? Why don't you have a better work-life balance? And I hope that we as a culture, right, can evolve to where we have the same type of um, view of sleep and um, the importance of napping. I'm a big proponent of napping and of being rested and, you know, sleeping enough and, um, you know, that, that that will be valued, right? Not, not considered something that you don't want to discuss. Do you think that this is changing for Americans since the pandemic? It's allowed us to feel what a more relaxed morning and lifestyle might be like? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I hope so. I do hope so. I hope that we've learned some lessons and we don't revert back. Yeah, learning the value of sort of rest and right healthy healthy sleep and healthy lifestyle and the importance of light too. I hope that folks got more light. Maybe if they were home, they had more right morning light and I hope so. I I don't know, but if it could be sustained in some manner, that would be wonderful. I'd be thrilled. <laughs> I don't know how we keep that in folks' consciousness without reminding them of the traumas, right, of the pandemic. If there would be some good things that could come out of it, that would be great. What do you think would improve our sleep health? Um, Should we all be taking naps after lunch during the workday like some countries do? Sure. I mean, I think I think if you're tired and you're sleepy, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of naps. I think there I think there are different kinds of naps. Um, I think if you know you're not going to get a lot of rest. Um, in upcoming days, you can take a uh, kind of a preventive nap that's been shown to be pretty effective, like a prophylactic nap, even ahead of uh, sleep deprivation, ahead of your sleep debt. I think that's that's one option for folks who know they might experience some sleep loss in upcoming days. I think um, if you feel sleepy, because you tend to feel sleepy at lunch, right, because you have that circadian dip where you're tired, I think I'm um, taking a short nap is uh, if you're able to take a short nap, I think that's great. Like a 20 to 30 minute nap. I would say give yourself maybe 20 minutes once you wake up um, to kind of fully awaken and not drive anywhere because you can have sleep inertia and that that's not so safe. So you shouldn't wake up and go. So if you're already at the office, you can take a quick nap and then wake up and you don't have to go anywhere. That's that's perfect. For those who can nap, yes, nap. Nap at work. And I think workplaces should have sofas and nap bays. I've heard that you want sleep nooks around yes. Old Dominion University. I do. <laughs> I, I love that idea. I do. I do. I do. I think that, you know, and I think that it, if folks would be more productive, I think that there's still this idea that if you nap, you're sort of lazy, you know. Um, there are all these like old sayings. I don't know if you've heard those, you know, early to bed, early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. But I do think that we still need, we need, uh, you know, naps and for the culture to really recognize the importance of sleep. So I would, I would love to see those darkened places where folks can go and nap. I think it would be so productive because just a 20 minute nap can really improve your sort of, you know, mental acuity for many, many hours beyond that. Um, And your creativity, right? You need sleep for, for um, creative thinking and for memory. And so I think that for some of those kind of brain functions, napping can be really, right? Fantastic. So I would, I would, I would, yes, I would love to see it in, 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 at Old Dominion. I would, you know, that would be like my dream, (laughs) quote unquote, not to have a pun on words. Right. And and also for those places to be judgment-free zones, you know? (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. Because I still think that there is so much judgment regarding sleep, Folks will say to me, yeah. I sleep, you know, 10 hours a night. Is that okay? You know, people, and I say, yes. I mean, they're long sleepers. Apparently Einstein was a long sleeper and uh, it served him well. <laughs> Mariana Sklow-Cox is a community and environmental health professor at Old Dominion University. From the endless diapers to the sleepless nights, caring for a newborn is tough work for everybody. Jennifer Payne is a psychiatry and neurobehavioral sciences professor at the University of Virginia. She conducted a worldwide study and found that about 10% of mothers also suffer from postpartum depression. Jennifer, how common is postpartum depression among new moms? I can imagine there are shades of depression following a birth. 
because it can be so overwhelming, but postpartum depression, is that a very specific thing? It is a very specific thing. Postpartum depression is the most common complication of having a child. Um, And most people don't realize it's that common. About 10% of women from the general population will develop postpartum depression. And if a woman has a pre-existing mood disorder, like a, a previous history of major depression or another type of mood disorder, the rate is even higher. It's about 40% of women will develop postpartum depression if they have a history. Is it hard to recognize? I think most women are exhausted in the immediate postpartum time period and really trying to do a lot, take care of the baby, take care of themselves. And they may not easily recognize that they are suffering from depression. Also, a lot of people really kind of dismiss their feelings uh, during that postpartum time period because they know it's hard to have a new baby. And so they just kind of shove their feelings aside and say, oh, I'll, you know, I'll get better in a few weeks. But then over time, when they don't get better, they may slowly recognize that they've developed a postpartum depression. How does it manifest itself? What does it look like? What does it feel like to the woman? What can people who love or care for the women see? Well, it's funny. Most women with postpartum depression also have significant amounts of anxiety. Um, And so what will happen is she will be worrying excessively about the baby. So many women uh, with postpartum depression will, for example, not be able to sleep when the baby is sleeping because they'll be worried that the baby is going to stop breathing and they'll kind of hover over the baby while uh, the baby is sleeping. Um, They also may become um, excessively concerned about germs, either from other people or in the environment. Um, So anxiety is a really uh, big symptom of postpartum depression. But aside from that, uh, most people with postpartum depression have what looks like a, a regular major depressive episode. So they'll be excessively tired. They may have difficulty sleeping. They may feel that they're having a hard time getting out of bed. And a key uh, symptom of depression is really not enjoying things. So this is part of what I think makes it hard for women. They may recognize that they're not bonding with the baby in the way that they should. They feel guilty. And so they don't think about it further. They don't want to admit that they're having a hard time enjoying this time period. Can dads get it? So actually, there's some really interesting work being done right now on uh, postpartum depression and dads. And absolutely, dads can get depressed in the postpartum time period. Now, we think that that is primarily due to the stress of the postpartum time period, because dads don't go through some of the same hormonal changes that women do when they deliver a baby. But absolutely, dads can get depressed as well. I've read about people saying, I feel guilty about this, but I don't feel a bond with my baby that's supposed to be so maternal and and natural and instinctive. But is not feeling a bond with the baby necessarily postpartum depression? Um, No, but it can be. I mean, the reality is the postpartum time period is difficult. I, I remember when my first child was born thinking, oh, my goodness, what have I gotten myself into? I don't know what I'm yes, doing. Uh, um, and, uh, it, you know, it's, it's a tough time. And many women think that there will be kind of a magical experience of bonding with their baby. And, you know, most bondings don't live up to that magical idea. So it, it may not be postpartum depression, but if, if a woman is seriously feeling that she is not bonding with the baby, she should consider whether or not she's having a postpartum depression because that, that's a very common symptom of postpartum depression. I was like you. I remember with the first baby being so surprised, maybe even shocked by how much there was to it, how hard it was, how sleepless you were. When my sister called me a few weeks in from long distance and said, how are you? I just started sobbing and said, I feel like my life is over and I'm now devoted to this little person. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) But I wouldn't have said that was depression. I was just overwhelmed. Right. And, um, 
you know, nobody really tells you how hard it's going to be. And so particularly for first time moms, it can be a very overwhelming time. When I do a clinical interview, I'm, I'm looking for a pattern of symptoms that hang together and don't seem to abate easily. Right. And so that pattern of symptoms is low mood, you know, with crying spells, feeling overwhelmed, et cetera, but also changes in sleep, appetite, energy, suicidal thoughts, I will say, are always abnormal and, you know, would be considered part of a depressive episode. And I'd be looking particularly for not really being able to enjoy anything that a woman uh, has previously enjoyed. So, women who are having a hard time will still enjoy their favorite TV program, will still enjoy a good meal, will luxuriate in a shower. Um, And, (laughs) you know, those types of enjoyment of everyday activities, that goes away when someone is, is depressed. I am surprised to learn from your research that most women with postpartum depression are not diagnosed and not treated. That's right. One of the things that I found out recently that I thought was really interesting, you know, postpartum depression, as I've said, is the most common complication of childbirth. And yet maybe 40% of women are screened for postpartum depression. And in contrast, gestational diabetes occurs in about 6% of all pregnancies. And we have a 99% screening rate for gestational diabetes. And so we can do better than that. And we should be doing better than that because postpartum depression is not just bad for the mother. It's bad for the developing infants as well. So when moms are depressed postpartum, they don't talk to their infants in the same way. They don't stimulate their infants in the same way. And multiple studies have shown that if mom remains depressed for a long enough period, that can have effects on the developing baby's IQ and language development. Can you treat postpartum depression though? Oh, absolutely. And like most depressions, we usually recommend a combination of medication and therapy because that's been shown to be the most effective. There's also a a new medication uh, that was approved by the FDA in 2019 that requires a hospital stay and infusion for severe cases. But postpartum depression is absolutely treatable. So for women getting postpartum depression, what do we think causes it? What triggers it? And how soon does it begin? So those are great questions. And of course, it's a complicated answer. We think that postpartum depression that begins in the immediate postpartum time period within the first few weeks after giving birth likely has a biological trigger from the hormonal changes that women go through at the time of delivery. And there have been multiple studies that have shown that early postpartum depression has a genetic basis and runs in families and can be triggered by hormonal changes. That being said, we also know that there are a lot of um, other environmental type influences on postpartum depression. So having a lot of stress in one's life, like financial issues or marital discord or not having a partner are all associated with an increased risk of postpartum depression. Having a traumatic birth experience is another risk factor. So we know that environmental stressors can um, also contribute to the risk for postpartum depression. Do you think we'll ever find a way to actually prevent postpartum depression? Or would we just better be able to treat symptoms? I think we're going to find a way to prevent postpartum depression. So some of my work has found um, some what we call biomarkers of postpartum depression so that I can take blood from women uh, while they're pregnant and predict with about 80% accuracy who's at high risk. And we're going to be moving in the future into studies where we try to do various interventions, including medication, to prevent onset in women who have these biomarkers. You participated in a very large study, a worldwide study of, I think, a million women to look at some of the more universal aspects that would indicate postpartum depression. That's right. I partnered um, with a mobile phone app called Flow Health. Flow Health tracks menstrual cycles and pregnancies. 
And one of the things that they do as part of the app is send a, essentially a mental health survey to women after they've delivered the baby. So we were able to look at over a million pregnancies in 138 countries of women who had answered this survey. And one of the neat things about the study is that everybody that participated was asked the same questions. We counted three of the answers that uh, women gave as counting for postpartum depression symptoms. One of the answers was, I can feel nothing at all. Uh, One of the other answers was, I feel down and sad. And uh, a third answer described really anxiety symptoms. And worldwide, um, the average postpartum depression rate was 10%. Some of the factors that we found that were associated with higher rates of postpartum depression symptoms included being a first-time mom, being a young mom, and having twins. Um, All of those were associated with higher rates of postpartum depression symptoms. The group that we found that had the highest rate, though, were moms who were over 40 and who had twins. And I thought that was interesting. I can imagine, um, you know, getting to age 40 uh, and then suddenly becoming a mother of twins is a significant risk factor. Is there anything that we can do, whether we're the partner of someone about to give birth or a woman about to give birth, that might ease the likelihood that our loved ones would go into postpartum depression? Sure. So first of all, I I think if you're a pregnant woman and you're not being screened, you should ask to be screened and talk about it with your doctor. I think the more doctors become aware that they should be screening, the better. Secondly, I think families need to think very carefully about how to best support women who are in the postpartum time period. And that includes protecting their sleep, making sure they're eating, and making sure they're not overwhelmed. And then finally, if if a loved one is really concerned that a mom, a new mom is depressed, then um, they need to be supportive and help them go get treatment. It is difficult sometimes to initiate treatment when you're depressed. Well, Jennifer Payne, it's so helpful to hear you describe this. I think it's the kind of suffering a lot of people do very alone, and it's helpful to know there are things we can do. Absolutely. I think people should know that they aren't alone, even if they feel alone, and that this is very treatable and they can be feeling much better. They just need to reach out and get help. Jennifer Payne is a psychiatry and neurobehavioral sciences professor at the University of Virginia. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason at Virginia Humanities. Chemotherapy is the best weapon we have at fighting cancer, but it's notoriously hard on the body and causes a number of side effects. Maxwell Hennings is studying one of the side effects called chemobrain. That's a mysterious ailment linked to cognitive decline in some patients who've undergone chemotherapy. Hennings is a neuropsychology professor at Longwood University. Max, tell me about chemo brain. What is it exactly? How do people feel? Well, chemo brain is something that happens to people after they receive chemotherapy. Not everyone gets it. And basically, it's just someone who has trouble remembering things, focusing on things, multitasking kind of the same way that they were able to before. Is it permanent once you get it? There definitely are some people who essentially I would, you know, classify them as having lifelong impairments. That's not common for everybody, but, you know, for this subset of individuals, we're talking, you know, 10 or more years post-chemotherapy treatment, still having these kind of persistent problems with memory, focus, attention. What about chemotherapy drugs themselves? Do they all cause it or have some been found in the literature not to? You know, that's a complicated question. You know, I think my reading of the literature is that there are at least, you know, we're starting to see some drugs being particularly known for causing problems. But 
Um, there's a lot of different drugs that are being used. There's a lot of drugs that are being used in combination in different regimens, um, different dosing. So it's a really complicated issue, and we just really don't know, you know, are there particularly problematic compounds? We're starting to see that, but it's not well established yet. Any idea what proportion of the chemotherapy patient population gets it? Is it like half of all or just a much smaller fraction of it? There are, you know, a lot of disputes about what are the exact numbers of folks. It depends kind of how you quantify that, right? What counts as a true impairment? How do I, you know, classify someone as having chemo brain? But I think most of the research points to about, you know, 17 to up to 34% of people who are getting these these chemotherapy drugs to combat cancer falling into this group of long-term cognitive impairments following treatment. And what have you read about how people are reporting their symptoms? And what is sort of the range of symptoms you've heard about? It can range from someone just saying that they have a hard time kind of focusing in really high demand environments. So maybe you have a job like, you know, uh, air traffic controller or something like that, where you have to focus on lots of things all at the same time and kind of keep track of lots of things going on. And someone who says, you know, I really can't do that anymore. You know, I can't sit there and guide these planes and keep track of all of this information at the same time. But in their normal lives, when they're not at work, having to do that kind of high cognitive load kind of um, task, that they don't have any problems. And then you have other people who say, you know, I park my car and I can't find it anymore. And I used to be able to do that. That used to be something that was really simple for me to, you know, navigate back to my car and remember these things. And I am completely forgetting how to do that. Right. And are are other people even more debilitated? Like, it hurts or they can't think straight? I'm sure you could find people who would say that they would not have wanted to get chemotherapy. If they had known that this was going to be the repercussion of getting chemotherapy, that they would have sought out alternative treatment. But, you know, it, again, there's a lot of variability in terms of, you know, what people are actually complaining of. And, even within that, you know, there's some people that have really profound problems, but they go away, right? And I think a lot of people would make the trade-off of being cancer-free if I can, you know, suffer through, you know, six months of chemo brain where I, you know, have a trouble thinking, I have trouble focusing, but it goes away versus people thinking about, well, if I were to survive this 10 years from now, I still can't do the job that I was doing before. You know, my life has fundamentally changed. So do you think scientists, researchers, doctors basically are speculating that the chemo treatments, which are targeting cancer cells, are also killing off some sort of brain cell or brain neurons that somehow affect our memory and ability to think clearly? Is that the, the hypothesis? Generally, yes. It can also be that you're dis disrupting kind of the normal function, too. So you don't have to necessarily be killing brain cells. You can just be altering kind of how your brain normally functions disrupting that process. I mean, the fact that this is such a complicated phenomenon, it's probably not happening the same way in every individual. Um, we've got lots of different drugs that have lots of different effects within the brain and the body in general. And there's probably some individual differences, you know, even talking about the immune system response, right? So you can, you know, you can look at how these drugs trigger someone's inflammatory response, and each individual is going to have a different inflammatory response. And that inflammatory response might be really severe in some individuals, and in other individuals, it's not going to be as bad. So there's going to be recovery from that. You are using rodents in your lab to monitor memory loss from chemo. What are you trying to tease out from these experiments? What I'm trying to do is focus on what particular chemo compounds or, you know, even different dosing regimens of high dose versus low dose or combination doses of these drugs seem to be causing problems for these animals. And then if we find kind of a, a dose or a drug that causes a problem, going in and kind of looking at the brain tissue and trying to say, well, what's happening within this organ that leads to these problems in these animals? And we can do that in a variety of ways. We can look at lots of different cells. So, you know, we're, we have a lot of tools that we can use in animal models that we can't use in humans. And that allows us to have kind of a really sophisticated way of kind of examining all these different cells and all these different things that are happening within the brain to try and find out, well, what's happening, at least in these animals, that might be 
a mechanism of damage within the brain or disruption within the brain, and then look for that same kind of phenomena in humans. And so how do you set up experiments to monitor chemo brain induced in mice? It's, it's tough. Um, generally, what we're um, doing is we're kind of combining both behavioral tasks where they can show us that they have either learned or remembered something that we've had them done previously. And the idea is that we're trying to find animals that struggle with a task where we show them something and they can't show us through their behavior that they've remembered the previous exposure to that. After they've gotten chemotherapy. Right, after they've gotten. And comparing that to animals that didn't get chemotherapy or got low-dose chemotherapy or didn't get that particular combination of chemotherapy. So describe the experiment you do where you train mice to swim through a tank of water and land safely on a little platform. Yeah, so that's called the Morris Water Maze. Essentially, it's a, a pool with water that's been, we've added a little bit of paint to it, so it's opaque. And there's a hidden platform that's, you know, a few centimeters underneath the water level. And it's relatively small. You can imagine a mouse doesn't take much a platform much bigger than maybe the palm of your hand to be out of the water. And mice don't like being in water. So they're motivated to find a way to get out of the pool. So when we put the animal in the pool... Their job is basically to swim around and try and escape the water. And during the initial kind of training phase of this task, they learn that there's a hidden platform. So either they find it by chance or they're guided to it. And through repeated exposure of this task, doing it a bunch of times, the animals basically learn, hey, there's a platform. I kind of know the rules of this game. And I'm going to go straight to that platform because I remember where it is. And they get good at this. Yes, they get very good at it. Compared to an animal, for instance, that has no memory of doing that task before or might have trouble remembering exactly where that platform is, you can see differences in the animal's performance. And after you've administered some of these chemo doses, you can really see the struggle? Yeah. I mean, um, there certainly are animals that seem to just not learn the task. Or if they learn the task, meaning early on, they can show us that they can get to the platform. If we then wait, you know, a couple of weeks, and then we put them in that same task, compared to an animal that didn't get chemotherapy drugs, um, they're performing like they don't remember doing this at all, right? They're swimming in circles. They can't find that platform. And then later, have you looked at differences in before and after brain tissue and seen any differences there? That's the part that we're still struggling on, right? Finding specific markers within the brain that um, help us to understand the behavioral problems that we were seeing in terms of learning and memory in these animals. We've seen some indications that there are, you know, certain cells that might be reduced in number than others. But again, it's a complicated phenomenon. You know, we don't have the, the perfect answer yet. We're still looking to try and say, well, what consistently right? Do we see in these animals that are having trouble what's going on in their brains? If you're a scientist or a drug maker trying to perfect a chemo regimen that wouldn't induce a chemo brain, what do you think the gold standard would be? I mean, what, what do you think people who are trying to do this are aiming for? Well, I mean, I think, you know, if we had a, a really good understanding of, you know, what's causing the phenomenon, obviously, Again, that trade-off between short-term versus long-term. I think a lot of people would be willing to make the trade of, I'm going to take this chemotherapy combat. It's going to make me feel sick. I'm going to lose my hair. I'm not going to feel very good. I'm also going to have some you know, memory and attention and focus problems. But those are going to wane in the next couple of months after I stop taking the chemotherapy drug. Many people are okay with that. If we can figure out What's causing these kind of persistent problems that we're seeing, you know, years later, if we can identify, oh, well, these particular compounds seem to be causing this at a higher frequency, well, then let's avoid them. Or alternatively, um, if we know what these drugs are doing, we can administer other supplemental compounds to try and protect or repair that damage that might be caused by these drugs. So, you know, again, it's a complicated um, problem and knowing what's going on within the brain that causes these impairments is the first step to trying to correct some of these issues. Have you given any thought to possible similarities between chemo brain and the brain fog that people with long COVID are saying they're experiencing? Um, certainly. So that's something that I've been thinking about a lot recently and thinking about 
that inflammatory response, what our immune systems are doing when they're exposed to these chemotherapy drugs or, in the case of COVID, the virus, and how that inflammatory response can be helpful or can hurt us. And I think that we kind of see that same phenomena, you know, a little bit different flavor, right, than chemotherapy drugs, but the same kind of issue where for a subset of individuals, not everyone who gets COVID is going to have long COVID. But for some, there seems to be this kind of profound kind of difference in the trajectory where they end up in terms of, well, I have, you know, now cognitive problems, I have vascular problems, I have all kinds of health-related effects as a result of my one exposure to COVID, you know, months ago, right? And that's what we want to try and avoid in the chemotherapy literature as well, is try and figure out, well, what is it about that individual or their, you know, immune response that drives these kind of long-term problems? It must be so exciting to be playing a part in this. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I, I, I think... You know, I think we've all we all know someone who's gone through a cancer diagnosis and the fact that someone might survive a cancer diagnosis and then have to suffer these, you know, in some cases really debilitating quality of life issues for the rest of their lives is is something that is really heartbreaking, right? Because dealing with cancer by itself is a, is is really stressful. So trying to figure out, you know, what are the particular ways that we can help these folks and avoid these kinds of problems is really kind of energizing. And it makes me feel like I'm doing something worthwhile when I'm doing this animal research. Well, Maxwell Hennings, I'm grateful to you. Thank you for talking with me and with good reason. Thanks for having me. Maxwell Hennings is a neuropsychology professor at Longwood University. Many people are prescribed Prilosec and Prevacid to treat their heartburn, but what if those same drugs could fight cancer? Randall Reef is a chemistry professor at the University of Mary Washington. He says heartburn drugs may turn out to have the potential to revolutionize the way we treat certain cancers. Randy, what sort of heartburn drugs are you talking about? And what first gave you the idea that heartburn drugs might help with cancer? So what was really exciting about this is this was actually a student project. And she discovered a paper back in 2004 that noted that this drug, omeprazole, which is the main ingredient in your Prilosec, and she found that this drug induced cell death in the cells that we were studying in our lab. And so my student wanted to see if, if she could use, if we could use, other drugs like Nexium and the prescription drug to do the same thing. So could they also interact with the cancer cells that we grow in our lab that we study? And by interact, you want to know, could they kill cancer cells? Absolutely. Yes. So most of us think of antacids as something that, you know, mops up the acid in our digestive system. But how do you see antacids as relating to cancer cells? Many cancerous tumors are kind of overactive. So you can think of cancer as trying to grow all the time. And right. so what that does is that produces a lot of cell waste. And so they actually use these special proteins called proton pumps. These proton pumps basically pump their acidity out of the cell and into their surroundings. These proton pumps are actually what the antacid drugs are treating. So the idea is that cancer cells rely on an acidic environment to multiply, and heartburn drugs reduce the acid, which conceivably, your theory is, chokes out the cancer. Yes. So what it does is by these drugs interacting with those proton pumps, the cancer cells can't pump the acid out of themselves. And so that acid builds up and they die. How did you set up that experiment and what did you find? So we grow these cells in our lab. Basically, she would take her cell solution and she would divide it up into some tubes. And in each of the tubes, she would add the different drugs. And then she would add a special molecule that would allow us to see if we were getting the type of cell death that we wanted. And she would look at them every six hours for about 30 hours. And she would look for uh, the, basically this type of cell death activity. And what did you find? 
So we found that at 30 hours, that one of the main enzymes is activated just as strongly as the chemotherapeutic drug doxorubicin, which is a chemotherapeutic that is known to kill cells via the same method. And so we, she compared it to that. And when she got done uh, for, with her 30-hour pictures, she brought me the pictures in, into my office the next morning. She came running in at 9 a.m. with her pictures all pulled up on her laptop. She sat the laptop down was like, Dr. Reef, look. It looks, this, this picture of the, with these proton pump inhibitors, the Prilosec and Nexium, they look exactly the same as our chemotherapeutic drug for this type of cell death. So if the cells she's looking at through the microscope look like the cells that have been exposed to chemotherapy, were you finding, in fact, that it was killing cancer cells? Yes, they were absolutely killing our cancer cells. Now, it's important to note that we are looking at one type of cancer. So we are looking at a, it's a lymphoma, right? So it's a very, it's basically a blood cell cancer. You know, one of the great things about working on a project like this is the fact that undergraduate students gain the experience of growing cancer in a lab, and they're responsible for growing and maintaining those cells. And so one of the first challenges I always present my students with is the can they actually maintain a cancer cell culture for a four-week period, right? And so that means that they have to grow these cells and they have to, for lack of a better word, feed them to keep them growing. And they have to not, you know, accidentally let them die. And uh, one of the ways that we know that is we know by how the cells grow. And so my students, when they look at the cells under a microscope, they'll know if the cells are growing by how the cells look. These particular cells are basically really small spheres, right? So they're tiny microscopic spheres. And when they grow, they grow together. And they actually, as they mass, they actually stick together until you shake the tube. When you shake the tube, they'll fall apart they'll fall away from each other and separate. But if you're really gentle with the tube, I tell my students to gently take the tube and put it on the microscope and look inside and see if you see clumps of these cells that kind of look like dipping dots. Or for <laughs> a better example, maybe grapes, grapes with no vine. So they should be clumps of these spherical cells. It makes me think of dipping dots every time I think of that wonderful ice cream. How do you feed cancer cells in a tube to keep them growing? <laughs> Right. That is a fantastic question. I love that. So we call it feeding. But basically what happens is cancer cells uh, in, in culture, so the way we're growing them in an incubator, they will grow totally uncontrollably. They will literally consume all of the nutrients. And as long as they've got access to the nutrients they need, they will continue to reproduce. And so what my students have to do is my students have to change out the nutrient. And so what they actually do is they let the cells get very concentrated in say a 10 milliliter volume. So a small volume of a tube, they let the cells grow until they've consumed all the nutrients. And at that point, they'll take a small amount of that concentrated cell solution out. They'll put it in a brand new tube and they'll add a fresh allotment of this special medium, this special uh, solution that has all the nutrients they need. And so in that way, you can keep the cells growing effectively indefinitely. Like friendship bread, huh? <laughs> exactly. Yes, <laughs> exactly. You keep it going. If heartburn drugs prove effective in fighting some forms of cancer, how would that change the way we treat cancer? What would be the advantage for treating cancer with heartburn medication? So it, it's more that these drugs are more likely to open a door. So I would call it like opening a door to potentially the treatment of the types of cancers that rely on creating an acidic environment around their tumor. It's a different weapon, if you will, potentially. Now, I will admit freely that the future of this project is likely going to rely on future chemists and pharmaceutical researchers modifying these types of drugs. This is just, these are the drugs that we have. There would be ways that other researchers could take these drugs and use them as a base, and they could modify them to make them probably better at actually killing specific cancer types. But that's beyond me. That is outside my, outside my skill set, my, my research. That's fascinating. 
I mean, the students must love learning about this. They do. They do. And they love taking it to their other classes. That's why how this, this project was started was so amazing. So when Ashley was working on a completely separate project for a class, and she just found the paper and was like, you know, Dr. Reeve, we could do this. Like, I, we can get this drug. We could buy it from our chemical suppliers, and we could test this in our lab. And I said, let's go for it. And that's super cool. And, you know, it's a reminder that innovation in science comes from every conceivable direction, right? It's not just a yes. few top minds that are having breakthrough thoughts. Correct. You got it. And that's, I, again, that's why I, I love doing this job. I love this job. I love watching the students figure out, find something new, find something that they're passionate about and pursue it. And getting to be a part of that and getting to do this research and take a, a come up with a whole new research project that is now recruiting students into my lab. And I've got students coming to Mary Washington that are working with me. It, it's It's been an absolute highlight of my career so far. Well, it's really exciting to hear about. Randall Reef. thank you for talking with me and with good reason. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. It's been a pleasure to be here. Randall Reef is a chemistry professor at the University of Mary Washington. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients. UVAHealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Cassandra Deering and Aviva Costo are interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.